Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves. And I'm Don Bishop. We're your hosts for the Ask About Fly Fishing show. On tonight's broadcast, we'll be featuring Kelly Gallup, and he'll be answering your most important questions on fishing streamers for trophy trout. We're broadcasting live over the Internet, as well as on a teleconference call. The link for our online broadcast is available on the home page of our website, www.askaboutflyfishing.com. Just click the red text that says listen to the broadcast. The call-in phone number for our teleconference call is 712-580-6300, and the passcode is 511-739-POUND. That's 712-580-6300 and passcode 511739-POUND. This show will be approximately 90 minutes in length, and during the first hour we'll be asking Kelly the questions you have sent in over the Internet. During the last 30 minutes we'll field your questions live over the Internet and on our teleconference call. If you are listening to our Internet broadcast and you'd like to ask a question of Kelly, just go to our homepage at www.askaboutflyfishing.com and click on the link below the description of Kelly Gallup that says, click here to ask Kelly Gallup your most important question. That will take you to another page, and then you can ask your question on that page. For those of you on our teleconference call, just wait around, and we'll open up our lines, and then you can ask your question live at that time. The broadcast is being recorded, and it will be available for playback on the website about one hour after the call ends. So if you have to leave early, you can come back and return to our website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast anytime. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll talk with Kelly Gallup about catching those elusive trophy trout using streamers. This portion of our show is brought to you by Scientific Anglers. No matter where you like to fly fish, be it your local trout stream, a saltwater flat, or that once-in-a-lifetime destination, you can always rely on 3M Scientific Anglers for all your fly line needs. With the innovation of 3M behind it, Scientific Anglers offers mastery series fly lines for nearly every fly fishing technique and situation. Visit www.scientificanglers.com or call 800-430-5000. That's one 800 430-5000 to find your nearest Mastery Series dealer. Tell them you heard it on Ask About Fishing Internet Radio. Before we introduce Kelly, we'd like to let you know about a great gift that we have to give away tonight. Kelly has been kind enough to provide an autographed copy of his book, Modern Streamers for Trophy Trout for our drawing. As Jack Dennis said, Modern Streamers for Trophy Trout is a revolutionary book. It will change the way you think. So we hope you learn a lot tonight, and uh, the, the book will augment your learning as well. If you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage again at www.askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Kelly's section that says Register for Drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and then you'll be registered for tonight's drawing. We'll be announcing the winner at the end of the show. Well, our guest tonight is Kelly Gallup. Kelly started his fly fishing career at the age of 13 when he tied flies for the local tackle shop. Now he has over 40 nationally recognized fly patterns. He started guiding at the age of 16 and still guiding to this day. He owned and operated the Troutsman's Fly Shop in northern Michigan until 2002 when he sold the Troutsman and moved to Montana. 
He and his wife Penny now own the Slide-In Lodge on the Madison River in southwest Montana. Kelly is a media star. He has DVDs and he has written two books, Cripples and Spinners and Modern Streamers for Trophy Trout. He's been published in nearly every major fly fishing periodical in the U.S., and he is now one of the editors-at-large for Fly Fisherman magazine. He was one of the hosts of Fly Fish TV on the Outdoor Life Network, and in 2004, he was awarded the Living Legend Award from the Federation of Fly Fishers. A very warm welcome to Kelly Gallup. Good evening, Kelly. How are you tonight? Good evening. I'm doing well. Hi, Kelly. How are you doing? Good. Well, we've got a ton of questions for you tonight. Great. And people, I think they're interested in catching trophy trout for some reason. Do you get that part? or, or You got that part a long time ago, didn't you? Well, I don't know. I got the bug a long time ago. I'm still trying to figure the rest out. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've got to take the first question, Roger. Sure. It, uh, it came in from Joe in Rapid City, South Dakota. He wants to know, could you please tell me what happened to Fly Fish TV on OLN? It was the best show on fly fishing I've ever seen. Well, it, you know, I liked it too, but uh, <laughs> the network's just, uh, they're just getting rid of the fly shows. I don't know why it was, uh, we definitely would have liked to have it around still, but they're just cutting back. I don't know if the advertising budgets aren't there or uh, the interest, but uh, just not as popular as they once were, so they cut all the, for the most part, uh, most of the fly shows are gone. Unfortunate, but, you know, what had happened. Well, you obviously have some, some fans still out there, Kelly. Well, I appreciate That's it. For we, sure. we had a lot of really great people, you know, that followed the show, and it was it was really fun to do. It's uh, too bad. We, we mentioned a couple of your books. Don't you have a couple? You told me you were working on another uh, DVD or something that's coming out? Uh, yeah, I've got a new nymphing DVD coming out that we're going to shoot the 27th. And then along with the Modern Streamers DVD, we did the original uh, tying tape, which was six of the most popular patterns at that time. And since then, I went to primarily articulated flies, two hooked flies with a joint. And so we're doing a second DVD on that, which will be six of the more complicated uh, streamers that we use mm. most often. Great. And if you are interested in Kelly's books, tapes, or, or DVDs, uh, we've got the current ones on our website on his books page, which you'll find from his bio page, and you can order them there. Or you can call Kelly at his, his shop there up in Montana and order them directly from Kelly. So we want to make sure you get them one way or the other. Now, we, we've kind of broken this out in sections, and I think one of the best places to start here, uh, these trophy trout uh, Kelly is to talk about you know big trout behavior and you know what's different about them than smaller trout. So one of the questions that came in is number one: are they are they territorial? Well, you know it, they are extremely territorial, but a lot of times that gets confused with holding a ground. Uh, you know that they stay in one spot and they're extremely territorial. Actually, most of what uh, not most, but an awful lot of the book is talking about the behavior of the trout and the territorial be- response that they will, you know, use when you go into that zone with a fly. So a lot of it's based on the fact that they're incredibly, ter- they'll stand their ground is what I'm saying. You know, it's the fight or flight mechanism that all mm-hmm. all animals have, you know, and and they'll they'll defend it 
but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're ter- that they're going to be in the same spot always. You know, mm-hmm. they're territorial of no matter where. They're like a big grizzly bear. You know, a grizzly bear can be anywhere, and he's territorial of where he is. Yep. So yes, they're very territorial. So so you're saying that the the, the large trout themselves do not. Uh, I mean, they don't have their favorite pool. They could be in that 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 big pool one day, and then they could be in a run the next day, and then they could be off on a side of a bar the next day. So. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, in, in previous to writing the book, uh, I did about 200 and, well, I logged 219 hours of snorkeling, uh, mostly in northern Michigan, but I did a few of the western rivers, you know, when I was out here fishing. And believe it or not, uh, you know, I was, my father was a guide in the 40s, and I grew up with this, and I was basically always told that, you know, old saucer eyes lived underneath that bank, you know. Right. He lived there forever. And in the 219 hours of diving, I never saw what I call a predatory fish or a a trophy fish, a fish over 24. I never saw one in the same spot twice. And I frequently would uh, run a a mile of river, and then I would run it the next day, uh, sometimes three days in a row. And... I never saw one in the same spot. So they can be, uh, we have you know, radio telemetry studies that we used when we were writing the book, and it showed fish moving as far as a mile a day just to feed. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, they can be anywhere. Probably not in a place like the Madison where there's so much food available, huh? Well, yeah, that's, you know, the, <laughs> the fish move, you know, what we found was that and I think it's the same, and it, you know, it's a little bit dependent on how much food base is there. And, sure. You know, you take some of the tailwater fisheries like the Taylor's Spork or something like that where fish really don't have to move, and I'm sure we'll get asked that question about food and, you know, and what they eat and when and things like that. But, you know, in most rivers where they don't have those huge influx of like a micey shrimp where they actually have to feed, you know, move to feed, <clears throat> they will go to feeding grounds. It happens here on the Madison. It definitely happened in all the rivers I fished in Michigan. And that's what we found was during that radio telemetry study, the fish would, one fish in particular, it was a 28-inch fish, moved a mile a night to feed on the hex hatch. And then Hmm. he would move back somewhere in a holding zone. Because they have different feeding zones and different uh, resting zones. Now, you... um so, so you just talked about him, him traveling to to feed on a, a hatch, right? Mm-hmm. Um, That's a pretty rare thing, Roger. That, um, and I, I hate I don't want to jump ahead and answer somebody's question that I haven't heard yet. But it's pretty rare to have without enormous biomass hatches, and there's only a couple I think that can make a predatory fish eat bugs and. And primarily, I think they need to be evening or night hatches. Like the hexagenias mm-hmm. uh, are going to be, they don't really come back. You fish the spinner fall more than you fish a hatch. And they come back 1030 to midnight. Oh. So the fish is already on the move. And he's got, you know, his normal feeding period, which is in the evening. Uh, and so he's moving to those, you know, huge biomasses. That's a place where a, uh, a fish could actually eat enough insects to make it worth their while. Mm-hmm. But other than, you know, the, the Terranarsis, the big salmon flies, uh, something of that nature, I don't think they do it very often. 
But the same study did show fish moving to different types of substrates to feed every day. So basically, um, a fish is in a holding area for the you know certain part of the day, and then yep. and then moves to feed, and then comes back to that holding area. What in a 24-hour period? What are the the feeding times then? That you know when are they actually feeding, and uh, you know what's what's the best time to fish then? Okay, well, again, I want to qualify that I'm I'm just talking about these predatory fish. Right. And I want to kind of qualify. They change over from bug eaters to carnivores somewhere in, every river's a little different, uh, 18 to 22 inches. Somewhere in that range, those big predatory fish become mostly meat eaters. And that fish, you know, is going to have, um, unfortunately, <laughs> They aren't usually feeding when we fish. That's the unfortunate part of the deal. Mm-hmm. But two hours before dusk, two hours after dusk, and two hours before dawn and two hours after dawn. What I found for me personally is most of that two hours around dawn was frequently a travel time for the fish to go back. They were usually, you know, they weren't as active as they would be in the two hours before dusk or you know right after. But for the most part, during the day, the fish is strictly in a resting mode. So based on their behavior, if you're chasing after these big guys, you're going to try to pick the feeding times to imitate food. In other words, you're, and, and other times you're going to try to burn them up a little bit uh, just by invading their space? Exactly. And like I said, it's unfortunate, but most of the time when we fish these fish, or you know, when we're on the water, they're they're not in an active feeding uh, time. So what I use is, uh, you know, I try to elicit a strike by kind of tapping into, you know, the dark side of their brain, if you will. Like you have to elicit the strike by something other than food. You know, they're not necessarily, if that fish is just, you know, a big fish, a 24 to 30-inch fish will eat half its body length given the chance. So (laughs) let's say that a, 25-inch fish, or let's go with an even number, let's go with a 24-inch fish went out the night before, eats a 12-inch trout, not much is stimulating him in the hunger zone. Mm-hmm. So what you have to do is you have to elicit that fish to maybe do something it doesn't necessarily care to do by invading its territory and simply making it respond, uh, you know, just come up and wham, just take a shot at something that's in its in its zone. I mean, I always use the same analogy in my seminars about grizzly bears because everybody's, A, hopefully afraid of them, and B, (laughs) understands them, that if you, you know, walk upon a bear, uh, you know, and he's resting in the middle of the day, and you run up and kick him in the hiney, he's probably going to respond. Or if you just run up and, you know, he doesn't have any natural predators, just like really big trout don't either, really. I mean, ospreys, kind of birds of prey stuff, they take fish to about 16, but that pretty much ends it. Maybe an otter, but, you know, they don't tend for the big fish either, so they pretty much dominate their zone. And so I try to just simply hit, you know, to elicit the strike with the the fly. Mm-hmm. You also said kind of, uh, I think one of your analogies uh, on, your, on your video was a DVD was the idea of a, a lion eating, too. You know, we always exactly. see the lions lying around, and you had 
related that to the fish too. Once once they're full, they're napping, so to yeah. speak, I guess, right? Yeah, you know, I, I frequently talk about Thanksgiving dinner, and you know, when you're say it's one o'clock and you're carving the turkey, and a piece of turkey falls in the ground, you'll rustle the dog for it. But an hour later, after stuffing yourself and you're sitting around on the couch, the last thing that stimulates you on earth is more food. So it's a, it's a, and I, I always tell people that I think food is the worst stimulant for big trout because it's, it's not very often that you're going to find the truly hungry trout. If you do, it's a guarantee. If you don't, you know, you have to do, if the fish just simply like the lion and the Serengeti, like you said earlier, you know, you see shows all the time on TV of these cats with gazelles walking within feet of them in the middle of the day after they've fed. Mm-hmm. They don't move. They have a specific feet. And I think all predators are the same way. They have specific feeding times that they're programmed to respond and get up and hunt. Because these are definitely hunters. Big trout are definitely hunters. And they go out on the prowl looking for their food. And that's where the fish, that's where the understanding the difference between a, a predatory sized fish and just a regular feeding fish. You know, for years we were taught that the primary, the biggest fish took up the primary feeding zones. Mm-hmm. And I think, like I said earlier, other than a couple hatches, uh, I don't think big fish eat bugs. Uh, so, very, very rarely. So if we're generally fishing the non-feeding zone for these fish. Mm-hmm. Are there particular things that we want to drag across their territory to elicit that strike? Well, you know, partly size matters uh, mm-hmm. for sure. You, you've got to have something that is adequate to stimulate that fish's response. And back to that same analogy of the grizzly bear, if he's laying there and a mouse runs up, you know, and starts chirping at him, he isn't going to get a response likely. Now, if you do it, you probably will. So you have to have a fly that is sufficient to elicit that strike. Mm-hmm. Now, there's, you know, I, I, I base a lot of my flies on food sources in that general shape, and then I usually just expand them. So a small fly for me would be a I seldom fish smaller than a 4, 3X, which would be a 3.5-inch long fly. Mm. That would be in the small end of the spectrum. Now, it's not to say you won't catch a fish. You know, you're always nervous when you say this sort of thing because some guy will say, well, you know, I caught a 28-incher on a size 10 gray ghost. It, mm. it, it can happen. I'm just talking day in, day out, you know, running the odds in your favor you uh, using a fly three to seven inches long will greatly increase your chances at a fish over 25 inches. And <laughs> I, I find that seven is the upper end of my uh, what I what I enjoy fishing. I've done I, I fish some of Mark Sadati's fly. I'm sure a lot of guys have heard of Mark. He's a great saltwater angler, and he's got some really innovative patterns for stripers and blues. And I tried some. Sadati seducers, I think they were called. They were 13 inches long, mm. and I fished them for a day. And you know, I, I never rose a fish to one. I didn't. I did raise a pike to one once, but I never saw. And I kept scaling back. And it seemed that seven inches was the top end for, you know, being able to fish the fly well and elicit the strike. So anymore at this point in the game, I generally cap the flies. 
I mean, day in, day out, five inches is about my normal fly. Hmm. Kelly, Dave in Pennsylvania uh, asks, uh, and, and we've kind of identified here that you're probably going to be doing most of your fishing in the daylight hours when it's not really the feeding time. Mm-hmm. But he wants to know, do you actually go out and fish at night? Do you go after sunset or before dawn and do any fishing? Uh, well, Dave, I, I, I used to do a lot more of it than I do now. Uh, and primarily it was because I, I, I just so much enjoyed seeing the fish's response. And that's a big part for me. But I used to fish an awful lot at night in Michigan uh, with streamers and... I, but if I have my choice anymore, I would fish, and I do fish a lot up till dark, like that last two hours right before dark, and I, and I fish that an awful lot. And I also like to fish really early, but I do, I definitely get more big fish in the evening. Right. Before we leave their behavior, uh, Kelly, uh, we have one question that wonders if large fish have a choice between a lake or a stream, will they pick one over the other, or does it depend on food, or what what influences that? Well, you know, I, I can't honestly tell you I know that answer. I can tell you from experience that a lot of lake fish, and I rather there's a preference I don't know, but given the areas I have fished a lot, I know a lot of the lake fish will move into the rivers to feed, Mm-hmm. and go back to the lake. Now, whether they prefer one or the other, I, I really don't know. But I do know in what you know in the, in the lower ends of the rivers uh, that are connecting you know, that flow into a lake. Right. We had an awful lot of migratory fish in the evenings, you know, coming up and then going back. And we we always assumed that they would come up to feed, you know, in the evenings. And I also have seen it in lakes especially on the Great Lakes tributaries, uh, when you have big migrations, which you would have on any river in the spawning, uh, you know, when the steelhead, for example, came up and, and they spawn, and then when the steelhead go back, the, the prepar fish, you know, the, a lot of people call them smolts, go back at the same time to the lake. And the big browns would come up to intercept those schools of fish going back. So, again, it's food-based, and it's an opportunity that they're taking advantage of. But I really don't know if they would, given the preference, uh, I don't really know the answer to that. Well, it might make some sense if you think in terms of just the work of staying where they are. In a lake, there's less work than in a river. Sure. Yep. And maybe more cover. I mean, they yep. feel safer because they can be a little deeper. Or, mm-hmm. or I uh, had the opportunity to see a fish in Michigan and before I left that was 11-pound brown that a guy who was a gear fisherman caught it, and he targeted the fish in May, big browns, out of Lake Michigan, and this particular one, he kept it, it had five smolt in its belly. <laughs> and so he was, that fish, and they said they always went there and fished them, intercepting those rainbows going back, so... You know, I'm sure that would happen in any river, and I know it happens in Alaska. I know that some of those fish, they've tagged that some of those Alaskan rainbows that go from as many as three different tributaries to feed on different types of food. They live in the lake, but they go back and forth to the rivers. Interesting. 
Well, we need to take a break here, gentlemen, but uh, when we return, we'll talk more with Kelly about fishing streamers for uh, trophy trout, and we'll, we'll start out with uh, equipment, what, what, what Kelly uses for equipment when we get back, so stay tuned here. This May 30th through June 4th, the top fly fishing competitors in America will descend on Boulder, Colorado for the U.S. National Fly Fishing Championship, which is sponsored by Colorado Trout Unlimited. The competition will take place at five different sites in northern and central Colorado, and all events are open to the public. Representatives for Fly Fishing Team USA will be chosen, and they will travel to the World Fly Fishing Championship in Portugal this September. For more information, go to www.nationalflyfishingchampionship.com. That's nationalflyfishingchampionship, all one word, dot com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Kelly Gallup about fishing streamers for trophy trout. So, Kelly, what what is your equipment set up? And we're talking rod, reel, line, leader. They, we had a lot of questions about that, of course. And how do you set up? Well, I basically I fish a nine foot six weight. Uh, pretty much always do. Uh, I like a a medium medium fast tip with a pretty stiff butt uh and you know that's kind of personal everybody you know in uh, a lot and i think there's a little bit of a misconception on a lot of streamer rods that they should be really fast and i fish a full sinking line i have my own line with jim teeny uh and it's a full sinker and i like the little bit softer tip not soft just a medium flex tip Simply because the fly lines are heavier, they you know they sink faster through the air than a floating line does, and the little bit more medium flex tip opens your loop slightly. So I like the nine foot six weights is what I fish almost exclusively, and then the the full sinking line, and I like a large arbor reel. Uh, not so much for pickup. I like, <laughs> believe it or not, I like it, it stores the line bigger. In bigger loops and it doesn't coil as badly uh, that's real you know because they're they're titanium or tungsten I mean coated and so they they can tend to coil up a little bit any line can and I, I like that bigger arbor reel right now I'm fishing you know uh, the VT2 sage and which is their moderately priced rod but for me personally that has the perfect flex you know, it's not too fast, not too slow. It's just right down the middle, and it's a really good streamer rod for, for bigger flies. Mm-hmm. Are there different uh, situations that would lead you to use a sink tip or an intermediate sinker or uh, shooting heads, anything of that nature? Not really. I, uh, I, I really think that the full sinking line gives you more control over your fly, Uh there are, you know, and there's, I said that I have my own, and there's virtually every company out there has a really good sinking line, you know. And, but the, the, and the sink tip lines, as long as they're 24 foot, they're about, uh, they're okay. But on the shorter tips, they tend to, you don't get the control over the fly. And part of it, the surface current is faster than the mid current. Mm-hmm. And if there's a floating portion, it tends to get caught in the current, and you lose a little bit of control over it. And they chase the floating portion. And so you don't get the control of keeping the fly in a certain depth. 
the intermediate lines, I, I never fish those on the rivers for what I do because it's, I, I put the fly in very quickly. I fish really fast, and I cover a lot of water, and I don't try to fish really deep. I fish, you know, the upper 18 inches, and I can keep that fly with a full sinking line in that depth, you know, whatever depth I choose, actually. You, you can fish within the top inch of the water if you, if you start your retrieve quickly. So day in and day out, I will fish a full sinker, and if and not for, for for any one advantage, but I will fish the the 24 foot heads or not sink tips, but I like them to be in the 200 grain, no more than 250, 275. Mm-hmm. They just become more awkward to cast. But I I really think that the full sinkers are a, a superior way to fish. Now, speaking of uh, the awkwardness of casting the full sinkers, do you bring that that sinking line in pretty close to you before you start working out your next cast? Um, it, it depended on how the fish are behaving. If, For the most part, I'm looking at the inside. I'm, I'm usually fishing banks. I retrieve maybe 20 feet. If I, you know, but you, you need to always change up. There'll be a lot of days when those fish will get on the chase, and they might eat it. I mean, I've had, I had a fish on the... Uh, Big hole last week. Eat eat one under the oar blade. I mean, he he ate the we the, even the oarsman felt it. <laughs> and so you have to be a little you know you have to play by their rules. But for the most part, no, I, I you know I retrieve about 20 feet and I pick up and go again. And you'll find with the sinking line, and and if you when you're fishing at this speed, you know you start your retrieve almost immediately that you can. You can roll cast a full sinker or just simply pick it up and cast uh, as easy as a floating line. Actually, the most part, I think sinking lines cast easier than floating lines because they're heavier. Sure. And they load the right. And I also find that with beginning or intermediate casters, they almost always will cast that line more efficiently than they will a floater because they simply feel the line. You know, they can feel it behind them, and they know when to start their load on the rod. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. I think I answered your question. Yeah. No, I think I think you did. Uh, when we when we think in terms of the equipment that you're using uh, and how you're delivering your your lures, what uh, what are you looking for out in the water? How are you, how are you reading the water and determining where where it is you're going to be working that streamer? Well, it, it, several things. Um, if I can divert here for a second back to the holding patterns mm-hmm. of where the fish are, that and and that in and of itself has to be uh, understood when you're fishing your river. The rivers that you know here are a little different than Michigan, a little different than Pennsylvania, but for the most part, big fish hold in relatively shallow water, uh, and they're going to be looking on, generally on the banks now. There are rivers where you have find more fish in the middle, but for the most part when I'm fishing, I'm fishing the banks and back to me. And what I'm looking for is substrate changes where the bottom of the river, uh, ideally I'm looking for a, a slight color change, but a softer bottom if I can, if I can find uh, a, a mix of gravel and silt, for example, with a slight color change. 
I'm always going to be on that. Big trout don't need structure to hide in. That's probably the number one myth in this whole <laughs> business of where fish hold. The biggest, in all my snorkeling, the, the biggest fish I found always, without exception, were in nowhere near any overhead cover. They were simply in uh, less than three foot. They usually are holding in 18 to 30 inches of water, and there will be a color change on the bottom. And when I say substrate, they're really critical substrates are because they can tell you the flow. The, you're looking for a moderate to slow flow for big fish to hold in during the day, and they'll be they'll be on those you know where the silt forms tells you there's not enough current to wash that you know substrate away. So I look for that first and foremost. I I always fish insides. If if you think about if you're dry fly fishing, the, uh, you're going to a bend in a river. You stand on the inside. You're standing where the big fish rest and that's one of the hardest things to get through even to me i mean i'm ever doing it for so long it's still hard to not necessarily throw to the bigger riprap on the the outside of the bend but you have to understand that fish is in a resting mode in the daytime so i'm looking for softer substrates maybe not really fast definitely looking for ledges where you've got a contour to the bottom where it maybe goes from 12 to 18 inches, and six inches a drop is sufficient to hold any fish in that river, I'll guarantee you. And, of course, I'm looking for shadows. A uh, little of that's ingrained for me from being in Michigan most of my life because there's so much trees and, and shadows, but they definitely like shadows. And when I look at the, you know, a lot of the, the, the anglers from the east are going to have more timber. Like out here, we have very little timber uh, in many of the rivers. Some of them have some, but... You look for the the bottom ends of the timber. You'll, you'll very seldom find a really big fish in the middle or upper end of the timber if there's a log jam or something. They'll be resting where the current's slower behind them. And, and a little of that, you know, is just getting used to understanding these aren't insect eaters. They're not mm-hmm. they're not setting up in a position to go out and catch a bug. They're, you know, if given the opportunity to see the fish that goes out and eats the bug, he'll eat that fish. So, you know, you want to be in the softer end of it. But basically, I'm looking from shore. Uh, I, I almost always try to hit my fly within three inches of shore, no matter what it is, and come back through it. And I like to fish to the middle of the river because, given the opportunity, I'd rather fish with a boat. But if I'm waiting, I would rather be in the middle fishing the shore back. So I'm looking for color change. I'm looking for substrate change where I go from gravel to sand, silt, moss. And I'm looking for any type of color like shadow over the river, any overhanging bank. You know, it just, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the old, you know, three-foot undercut bank. It doesn't have to be that sort of thing. It can be, they can be right, the three biggest fish I've ever seen in my life, snorkeling had they were in 18 to 24 inches of water barely moving there was a a substrate of silt on one side sand on the other and on the other two it was gravel and and silt and the fish were suspended basically when you first see them i almost thought that there was something wrong with the fish Hmm. because they were very they're extreme opposite of what i was taught that that fish would be holding in 
So, so saucer eyes isn't in the bottom of that, that uh, 12-foot <laughs> hole, huh? And, you know, frankly, uh, you know, depth is a very – I get asked that a lot, you know, how deep and the fish hold and where, you know, where they're at. And I don't think you – and, you know, as soon as you say this, especially on national uh, <laughs> publications, some guy will call me and say, you idiot, I caught one here. But I've never seen a really big fish deeper than five feet. And <laughs> and to tell you the truth, I – I'm telling you five, but I can't remember one deeper than four. I'm giving myself a buffer, a zone there to get out of this, whoever yells at me. But for the most part, uh, and, and frankly, the, the, the Michelle DePhillips uh, radio telemetry study that we studied quite hard uh, before writing the, the book showed that the fish uh, almost always stayed in less than 30 inches of water in the daytime. Big fish, you know. That they they don't really have much to be afraid of, and if you've ever walked up on a 25, 30 inch fish, you'll notice that they don't bolt away from you. They simply swim away. They they don't take off like a juvenile fish would. They just simply move out of the way. They you know just slide out and probably come back as soon as you're gone. But it's a wholly different way of holding and reacting than it is for a fish, say, 16 inches. They know that nobody's going to eat them, basically. Exactly. The biggest fish I ever saw was about, when I was snorkeling, was somewhere in the 18-pound range. It was on the Manistee in Michigan. And I swam up to that fish, and it was very little current, so I wasn't really working that hard to be there. And I observed that fish for probably three minutes. And I got kind of, at first I was a little spooked by him, to tell you the truth. He's probably three foot long. And he had no posturing, and finally, after a while, I decided what I could do is I just wanted to see if I could touch it. And so I moved in a little closer, and, and that fish simply swam away just out of my touch, I mean, barely moving, and just went upstream until he was out of sight. But never once did he act like he was in the least bit concerned that I, you know, a 200-pounder sitting next to this one, and he was, you know, 20 times his size, and he basically just eyeballed me. <laughs> he won. So, yeah, I, I don't think they're afraid of much. You bring up a thought there that I, I have about if it doesn't seem like they're that spooky. So if if you're out and you and you see a fish and you're fishing to a fish with a streamer, um, how many chances do you give them? And, uh, you know, if they do move away, do, are, are they – it's sounding like they're not spooks, so can you give it a second try, a third try? What's, what's sure. your chances? I, you know, personally, I think that they're either players or they're not. We ought, you know, when you're guiding for trophies, it's, it's, it's a tough business because you, you can't approach them like you can for smaller fish, and you, you have to keep reassuring your, you know, your client that this is a trophy hunt and you're looking for the players, and not every fish in the river is going to be a player on every given day. So if you see the fish and, and you give him your best shot and he doesn't respond, my guess is he probably will not. And, but if, if, you, if you think he's in the zone, now you may irritate him, you know, like, like a grizzly. You, might, you see a lot of grizzlies and they just move off. If you keep bothering him, he may not. Mm-hmm. So... But it's it's just a matter of, you know, statistically, you know, when you look at your how many fish you know you've passed and how many were truly players, it's not that, you know, the numbers are stacked against you. 
So uh, rather than spending an enormous amount of time on one fish, I continue to move looking for, you know, a happier fish or a madder fish, however the case may be. And, you know, getting – but I think once you've moved that fish, he's going to be in a a, a less likely position to want to attack something or feed. You know, same as, you know, it's a little bit like a feeding fish if you move them he's probably going to get a little saltery and just get out of there. Now, when you've got, uh, and let's say you've ag- aggravated a fish here and he's defending his territory, mm-hmm. um, will they always hit at uh, your fly or will they just try to chase chase the fly out of their territory? In other words, you get a lot of false follows? Or Number one question I get asked, honestly, is, you know, what are the percentages? And... Uh, and I just say, let's say on a on a really great day, you're going to hook 10% of the fish that hit your fly. And I get asked every single day, it seems like, you know, how do we get to that? You know, how do you get above that? And I'm waiting for the answer. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Uh, 10% is a great. You're going to get, you know, we call it getting the Heisman or, you know, getting a drive-by. They They come up and they just smack you. I mean, you just get an explosive strike, but yet you don't hook up. And I just don't think they eat it. I don't think they miss their food very often. You, you, know, you hear that. I think it's more of a solace for us, you know, for our egos that, oh, he missed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, Mike Craig, the gentleman who used to own Bighorn Anglers, had one of the best lines I've ever heard in my life he, when somebody said that in the boat. And I think it was me, actually. And, he said, yeah, when's the last time you missed your face with a cheeseburger? And, you know, <laughs> these fish eat for a living, and I, I don't think they miss it that often. I mean, I'm sure it happens, but I think it's a territorial thing. I think they come up kind of like a mock charge from a bear or a cat or something like that. They come up, take a swat at it, and they're gone, you know. If they want to eat it, they do. But you're definitely going to get a lot more shows than you're going to get, you know, actual hookups. Now, that being said, I do have one tip that that does work for me. I would say, you know, 15, 20% of the time, I don't know, maybe a little more. But if you actually get a fish where you feel it thump the fly and he just seems to spin out and disappear, uh, frequently what I've found is that that fish has went up and stunned that look to stun this thing, and it's moved downstream to intercept it. Because mm-hmm. they, they always go for a stun or the head, and then they, they'll, they'll want to eat it head first. And that will lead me to something here in a second if I remember about tail strikes. But And so what I do is if I get one of those thumps, if you can compose yourself enough to throw over top of the strike zone and then do a mend downstream and try to feed slack to the fish and let your fly kind of just flutter helplessly down towards it, what I found is somewhere between 6 and 12 feet below the initial impact zone, the fish is sitting and waiting. And frequently the fish will just come up and inhale your fly. Sometimes you don't even feel it. They've just simply – and I I got to that by – actually Jack Dennis had some footage of fish. He was actually – there were – Minnow takes and mice takes. And the fish would act, this is a huge fish, this is a 28-inch fish, and he would come up and take this, and they have this all filmed underwater. 
and it would take a mouse off the surface and take it underwater and let it go as many as five times. And he would do the same thing with minnows, and he would run them into stuff on the bottom and then let them go, and they were basically stunned to the end. They'd just come up and just, boom, eat them head first. <laughs> and so I started doing it, and it doesn't work all the time, but it definitely increases if you if you go right back to that strike zone, the fish isn't there anymore. And getting a fish to hit more than once is really rare, really rare. I mean, you just flip a downstream mend and let it yep, drift. Just let it flutter. Well, let's take another break here, and when we come back, we'll talk more with Kelly, and we'll probably get into presentation next and, and deal more with, with how Kelly presents his why. So uh, let's uh, take a break. Once in a generation, an innovation comes along that turns an industry on its head. In fly fishing, this is without a doubt the AST generation. AST, Advanced Shooting Technology, is scientific angler's patented dry slick coating that enhances every aspect of floating line performance. Shootability, castability, floatability, durability. Look for AST in Scientific Angler's Mastery Series and Ultra 4 fly lines. And remember, try an AST formulated line just once and no other fly line will ever do. We're back, and you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, talking with Kelly Gallup about fishing streamers for trophy trout. Now, let's talk about presentation. I think we skipped one thing when we were talking about the, the line setup and equipment, Kelly, so I'll, I'll try to hit that first. The uh, leader tippet scenario. Yeah. Um, you have a different setup on that than, than, than I've seen. Yeah, it's really complicated, so everybody should really <laughs> sharpen their pencils right now. And it, mine changes slightly. I, I, I tell people one thing and frequently do another, but uh, <clears throat> I think the formula that I originally put was 18 inches, and I remember this because it's really complicated, 18 inches of 20 pound and 18 inches of 12 and as a tippet. Anymore, I uh, generally run... 12 inches of 20 pound and 18 to 24 max for tippet. So never is my leader longer than three feet, never. Regardless of clarity of water, regardless of fly size, regardless of size of the river, period. It's, I, I would say as a, as a general rule, my, my leaders are 20, let's say 28 inches I mean, I, I, I'll cut them back. You know, I change flies very quickly, and we'll get to that, I'm sure, about the flies. But I, I change back, and when my leader gets shorter than, say, 16 inches, then I put on new tippet. So it's very a foot of 20 in, or 20 pound, excuse me, 12 inches of 20 pound, and then say 18 inches of 12 pound. I always use Maxima Ultra Green. I've tried a lot of different leader stuff. It's just it's very durable. I've got total confidence in it. I know it holds my knots, and uh, so I, I, I don't really switch from that. Now, you know that that's a pretty radically short leader for a lot of people, and they're, they're but the fish are not inspecting your tippet. This is not a dry fly scenario. It's a you know I always tell people you know streamer fishing is to dry fly fishing what rock and roll was to symphony. It's it's a whole different breed of cat. So 
we we spent a summer here. One of my guides, Andy Sabota, uh, he did an experiment one summer here. Every time he fished streamers by himself, he ran straight 35-pound hard mason with zero change in hook tip or in hookups. Now I, I've got to tell you, when you know, I, I can see people saying, "Wow, well, why not just run straight 20?" You know, why even bother with it? And the reason I reduce it to the 12 is that the core of most fly lines is a 20-pound brake strength. And you use uh, much over 12-pound, and it frequently 12-pound maximum, will, it will always break before your fly line. If you go to straight 20, you have an opportunity of breaking your fly line before you'll break your leader. So the reduction is mostly for that. And then... Above 12 pounds for the smaller flies, like those those little bitty fours, you know, the three-and-a-half-inch flies, they don't tend to swim quite as nicely on the really heavy line. So that's the formula. That's easy. That's easy. <laughs> I can handle that. 12 and 18, of 20 and 12. It's like tying rope onto your fly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if you get the boat gets hung up, you just cast ashore and pull it over the edge. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Well, Kelly, with with that kind of a short leader, how are you trying to work your fly through the zone that these big trout are observing? What's your what's your method of presentation? Generally, I I, I use and and I want to just elaborate just a second on that leader. The mm-hmm. reason that it's short is that I want I I want the fly to follow the fly line as closely as I can. And if you use too long a leader and you're using a lighter fly because, and we'll get into that I'm sure with the flies, mm-hmm. I don't weight my flies very often. So I, if the line is, if the leader's too long, the fly may be coming above the fly line. So the shorter it is, the better. As the presentation goes, I look for, I like to go perpendicular to the flow or cross stream, across stream or head slightly downstream, given the option. I like to use what's called a jerk strip. It's a, I actually coined that phrase from watching a bass show, Larry Nixon, wa- uh, doing something called walking the dog. It's a topwater uh, body bait, mm-hmm. and they they move the lure back and forth on the surface, and he would you know kind of jerk the rod and I and to make it do that. And I thought it was really. It's actually how I got started in this whole thing is. You know, trying to do that with a fly. <clears throat> Excuse me, and so it, and that's how the whole thing got started, actually, for me. But I, I jerked the rod tip, and then the strip, the jerk strip. The jerk is with the rod, or me on the end of it. In some cases, <laughs> I jerk the rod, and then I strip the line to point the rod tip back at the fly. And so what I'm trying to do is come across stream if possible straight across, and I want to move the fly six to eight inches with a pause between the next strip, no no more than a second, no less, you know, as quick as I can without with the, the fly actually pausing. So it's a start, stop, start, stop, start, stop, very erratic, very, you know, injury-related or uh, escape-related, anything like that, but I want it, I never want it to be a consistent swing i'm trying are you, to are, are you swinging the tip of your rod then to alternate sides with each jerk strip 
Occasionally, not generally. Generally, okay. I'm, I'm just jerking the rod. Uh, one direct, you know, it's dependent on which side of the uh, front and back of the boat or middle of the river if you're fishing to the right or left bank. If I was standing in the middle of the river fishing down, you know, facing downstream and fishing to the right bank, I'd have my rod pointing downstream and pulling crossbody. If I'm, you know, on the opposite bank, I'm, I'm always pulling the rod down because what mm-hmm. I'd like to have happen, if the current, you know, one of the things you'll hear about frequently, you know, I don't like to fish sinking lines because I can't mend them. Well, that's fine because you don't want to mend it. You want the fly line to belly, if anything, uh, because it'll point the fly, the fly's head downstream. The fit, you know, nothing's going to escape upstream. You know, uh, that would be like trying to run away from a bear up the mountain. You mm-hmm. wouldn't do it. You would run down the mountain. You'd still get eaten, but you'd run. And so the 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 fly I want to come across stream because again I'm looking for the fish. You know, he's looking upstream. I want to cross in his zone in a fleeing mash in a fleeing fashion, mm-hmm. so that it looks like there's either a I've invaded his territory and I'm escaping, or with that erratic rod jerking, you know, and, and moving. The, the the key is not the rod. The key is to watch the fly. And, and whatever you do, you're the one that's manipulating the fly. You're animating the fly, and you're trying to make it look either you know, escape or injury, but you don't concern yourself so much with what the rod does, but what the fly does. And if it moves six to eight inches in a good burst and then pauses slightly and then goes again, you've got what you want. That how, the, how far are you moving the, the rod tip to get that six inches, you know, 30 it, feet out? It's a little bit dependent on the water speed and how, how much bow has been put into your line. And a little bit on your rod. If you're if you're using a softer tip rod, you may have to uh, you may have to pull the line or the rod tip, excuse me, 18 inches because the rod's going to flex. Mm-hmm. And you may have to jerk that rod 18 inches to get that fly to go six inches. If you're using a faster rod, you may not have to move more than a foot. The key is as soon as you jerk the rod, whichever direction you do. You've obviously you've got your line under your stripping finger. You jerk the rod to manipulate the fly to animate it, and then you strip the line back so that the rod is pointing back at the at the head of the fly. You may even be able to get two jerks out of one strip, but you have to make sure that when you strip that excess line out, the rod tips back pointing at the fly. Probably the most common error I see. And when people first start this, is especially if they're in a boat, they will strip once, then strip, and then maybe, I mean, they'll jerk the rod once, and maybe they'll strip a little, and they'll jerk one or two or three times, and they'll actually get their back turned to the fly. They're kind of wanting to do more with their rod and their body mm-hmm. than they are picking up that slack, and so the fish hits them when they're, you know, got their back to them. So you, you jerk the rod and then strip that excess that you just did so that the rod tip's pointing back. And you it takes a little practice, you know, but it's you definitely get more animation out of your fly with the rod than you do if you simply strip the line. You know, the old-fashioned just strip, strip, strip. You get more animation out of your rod tip than you will with that just stripping the line. Do you let the, the – after your cast, do you let the fly – sink is there a pause there or do you just start stripping immediately 
Well, one thing when when I when I make the cast, and this is kind of critical to how this 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 whole premise of the eliciting a strike. I like that fly to hit loud. That's that's important. I want it to slap the surface of the water. When it hits the water, I generally give it a pull immediately. And then if I'm going, you know, just because if there's a fish in that in that three foot zone that you should be concentrating on, I like to hit every three foot of the bank if possible. That fish will be, if it's going to respond, it will have moved to your fly faster than you can move it the next time. So I, I hit it, and if I, the line will have sunk, say, six inches at that point, and I usually give it one good thump to make it move a little bit. And if I want to fish deeper, then I'll pause maybe a second or two with just a little bit of a motion of the fly. But for the most part, nine times out of ten, I'm going to slap the fly down, and I'm going to start to run immediately. Because, I, like I said, I, I seldom fish deeper than 18 inches. And for the mostly, I would say I fish a foot or less. I, I want the fish to make a move to the fly. So we've got the, and, the, and you're doing the reverse of what you do to fish a nymph. You've got Absolutely. the belly going downriver and pulling on the fly. Yep. And with the head of the fly, the goal is always to either have it going down current or cross current, I guess, at the very yeah, end. Straight of back at you or downstream slightly. Okay. But I, I don't necessarily want the fly to go straight downstream, but, I, you know, be, mostly because it, you can't animate a fly and make it go straight downstream because as soon as you touch the, as soon as you pull on your line, obviously the fly is going to curve back at you. Mm-hmm. You're almost broadsiding it to the As often as possible, that's what I do. fish, that's looking upstream at it yeah. exactly so he's getting a side profile mostly what it's getting is a, it's going to it's going to hear it or feel it actually in its lateral line it's going to feel the impact of it hitting the surface and then it's going to get a shot at it running away and you know that kind of triggers the that dark side of the little predator brain doing the jerk strip and you have a take what's your strike like if everything is perfect in the world if the fish hits you know, when the fly hits the water, your rod tip's pointing exactly at the fish. And as you're stripping, if he eats, obviously you're already in a striking position. Strike, yeah. the, the, the problem comes on that, you know, stripping the line and pointing the rod back. But you'll find when you get adapted doing this, that's less than a half a second. It'll just happen so quickly. And that's the key to getting that line back, because you always want the rod pointing at the fish. And I and I simply tighten on my you know stripping finger and just you know set sideways as often as I can, mm-hmm. because the fish is you know you never really know where he's. They can be coming. They can have circled. They can be coming from anywhere. And I and I don't do a super hard strike. You know, always. I mean, sometimes, but just by excitement. But generally, it's just a downstream good solid half rod stroke into the fish but when you know when you'll see on a, a 28 inch fish can take a five inch fly it'll disappear in the fish's mouth i mean they'll take in that fly so fast that it'll, it'll blow your mind that the whole thing is a seven inch fly can be inside that fish's mouth before you can even think of striking <laughs> so and generally that when you see the fish you, you don't have to wonder what to do you, you set the hook yeah. But I, I just use a half a rod. I I always set down. I, I seldom set up into the air. Uh, I don't like the position it sets me in for the next move. I like the rod low, and 
you know, just try to set. If you either, you know, sometimes you don't have an option, but given the everything's perfect, I like to set downstream with about a half a rod stroke. Okay, well, let's take a break again. Uh, when we return, we'll talk uh, more with with Kelly, and uh, we'll be opening up uh, the question answer session. So we'll open up our phone lines and see if anybody's out there. And if you're out there on the internet, uh, we'll take those calls too. This segment of our show is brought to you by Keeney's Fly Shop in Sacramento, California. Featuring classes on all aspects of fly fishing, Keeney's Fly Shop has an extensive inventory and fly tying department and a friendly, experienced staff whose primary goal is your complete satisfaction. Among their many services, one can book private waters or take advantage of their international travel service. Visit their extensive website at www.keeney.com. Dot com. That's K-I-E-N-E dot com. Or call Keeney's Fly Shop at 1-800-400-0359. Again, 1-800-400-0359. Okay, it's time to see if we have any questions out there after people have maybe we've kind of stirred some... Uh, Creative juices out there, and some questions are coming in. So let's uh, take a look out on the internet first and see what we've got. Uh, Don, you see anything out there? New concepts have just got my mind turning. We do have questions here that are coming in regarding uh, Kelly's remarks about flies, and particularly his remark about tying articulated fly patterns. The question is what? About well, tying them? You, you mentioned articulated fly patterns that you're tying now with, with sure. double hooks. Uh, I, I tie, actually, I've, I've gone to, other than a couple of the classics, the Zoo Cougar, uh, the Stacked Blonde, which is a standard bucktail, uh, just on a keel hook, and it's got, it makes a bigger profile. For the most part, I'm doing articulated flies, which means there's a, and I do all my, uh, I had an ar- article in Fly Fisherman that shows, I, I think it was May of 2003 was the issue. I can't remember to tell you the truth. And that showed how I articulate all, it's, it happens to be on the TNA bunker, and that shows the type of articulate. I use a a loop, and what I was doing on, all my, on my articulation when I came up with that was I was trying to imitate a jointed Rapala. And it, because uh, the the fish they swim with an S, and I was trying to get more than just wiggle, so I put a a loop, and I use this, a ring eye hook on the back, and then a mono loop or a wire loop. I've used a lot of wire loops too, uh, and so that the back fly is swimming left and right, not just wiggling. But for the most part, uh, part of the reason that I use the articulated flies. And I touched on that slightly about earlier about the short striking. I don't believe predatory fish ever short strike a fish, uh, a minnow, because they have no real reason to do that. Most prey items have a defense mechanism, uh, i.e. a spiny dorsal, or can be simply scales and fins. They all, you know, they can't eat them backwards. So they attack the head. And... The saltwater guys are so far ahead of us, it's ridiculous on this one. They've, you know, they've been using short shank hooks, that Bob Clouser's minnow, short shank hook. You know, one of the, probably one of the top most deadly flies ever developed. Mm-hmm. 
and they were always on short shank hooks, and we were a little slow as, as the streamer anglers to catch on. When I started tying this, when I started doing this, I was using Kerry Stevens trolling fly hooks, and they the hook itself might have been five inches long. And I kept getting fish eating the head, and I wasn't getting a hook up. And the other side to that is that when a big fish is on, especially a big brown trout, they will do what we call gator rolling, where when you've had them on for a minute, they'll get right below you, and they'll simply just start rolling in a circle. And they twist a long shank hook out so often, way more often than not. And with the short shank hooks that the saltwater guys were using, there was very little torque involved. And so I started articulating the flies and using shorter hooks on the front and you know what's commonly re- referred to as a stinger hook in the back. I'll use, a again, a short shank ring eye, which means the eye is not going you know, up and down with the shank of the hook. It's going side to side, and that allowed it to wiggle. And on that note, I'll tell you, and I get asked this a lot, about how often I get a fish with that back hook and I can tell you, I, I would, I, ha, I don't know the exact number, but I know it's less than five percent of the time. Really? I, I hook the fish on the front hook. I frequently use bass stinger hooks. They're short, you know, an inch, inch and a half long, and it's really increased my hookups using those those shorter shanks. You know, when you're talking about a five and a half inch fly, if, if that hook was, say four and a half, five inches back, and the fish eats the head, you're, you're not likely to get a good hookup on them. And so that second hook is just the insurance then, basically. It's a little bit insurance, and it also has a, a function. It, has, it acts like a, a rudder. Because frequently we were cutting them off because actually they get hung up in the net more than they do hooking the fish. But what... What that did is that when that hook is hanging down, it acts as a little rudder, and it keeps the fly going side to side. And when you cut it off, it tends to wiggle more, but not. When you look at an articulated fly that's tied right, and you just put it in the water, you don't have to strip it at all. It'll simply sit and swim like a minnow. Just like a, uh, you know, everybody knows what a jointed Rapala is. Right, sure. And they're two, how they make that joint is they use two ring eyes. They screw them into each end of it, and they are opposing each other. Mm-hmm. And so it, it simply wiggles. And that the, the, the articulated flies right now, the TNA series, which is <clears throat> one is all marabou, and it's just a, a lychee, minnow-looking thing. And the, other, the other ones are there's a rainbow and a shad pattern, or, or any minnow, really. And then we started articulating the zoo cougars. And which is, you know, a pretty popular pattern standard. We started articulating that. And then there's, you know, it's it's really growing. There's a whole new concept of flies out there that one of my guides came up with called a Swimmy Jimmy. Andy Sabota invented it. And it's a topwater minnow that we, it's got a, it's got a articulated, it's a rainbow imitation, but it's got a cupped underside and then the hook is bent down, and what it does is it makes it wobble back and forth when you're stripping it, and it pops back to the surface. So, I mean, there's, it's, it's really catching on. I mean, uh, there's a guy in Michigan, Russ Madden, came up with a fly called the Circus Peanut. It's a, again, it's an articulated fly, uh, just the most deadly thing you've ever seen. 
But I, I would say, you know, looking at my fly boxes, I, I would guess right now I'm probably close to 70% articulated. And with the exception of the, the Blonde series and the Zoo Cougars, uh, most of them are articulated. Well, before we uh, continue here, I'd like to encourage everybody out there to ask Kelly a question. Now's the time. If you're on the Internet, just go to our homepage, and right uh, below where Kelly's description is, you'll see a link that says, click here to ask Kelly Gallagher your most important question. Click on that link, fill out that form, send us in the question, and we'll try to answer it here on the show before we end tonight. And if you're out there on the phone, you want to call in on the phone, it's 712-580-6300. 712-580-6300, and you can ask your question directly to Kelly. The passcode for that number is 511-739-POUND, 511-739-POUND. So if you're out there, call in, and we'll, we'll have you right on the line here, and we'll uh, we'll take your call. Kelly, you've been uh, – uh, one some of the questions coming in are um, – you've probably heard this a million times, but um, – uh, you know, what's what's your go-to fly out there for, for a streamer? Which one do you have in your box no matter where you go, whether it's the uh, Sable or the Madison or the Yellowstone or, or wherever? Uh, well, I do get asked that a lot. and I, I've got an article coming out next, I don't know if I think it's the next issue, on my streamer fly boxes, and I carry a grotesque number. I think that's why I fish in the boat, because I need something to carry my fly <laughs> gear bag. Uh I color I color coordinate my flies or, or code them. I I go by flies are always by color, and I, I'd like to touch on that in case somebody sure. wonders. I I feel color is the most critical aspect to it. Once you establish the color, I don't think the fly is quite as critical as anything else. And you'll find in the day they'll come on and off a color. So how I do my my system is I start with the color of the sky. If it's a bright day, I start with the bright flies. So we're going to just assume it's a sunny day. I start white. And if that day I give a fly no more than 10 minutes ever, I switch to, and then I contrast. I keep a piece of foam block, drying block in my boat or with me or a drying box so I can always see this. I always know what I've used. So I start white, I do a total contrast, and then I go black. And then I go back, if that doesn't work, then I go to the neutral end. And so I went white, black, then I go to tan. If that doesn't work, I go to the opposite end of the neutrals, which is olive. And if that doesn't work, I go to either, if it's a high brown trout concentration, I go to yellow. If it's a higher rainbow concentration, I'll go to chartreuse. And then I, once I've established what color they're on, then it's kind of, you know, a little bit just experimenting. I have a bad habit of once a fly is working, I take it off and try to find something that else just because it broadens your, you know, your scope. Once If things aren't working and you find something that does work, you know, you have to experiment. But day in, day out, the question was, what's my go-to fly? Once I've established the color, uh, definitely the Zoo Cougar would be in there. And I do the Zoo Cougar in five colors. If I could have one fly for simple pleasure to fish, it would definitely be that fly. It's not articulated, although I do them articulated. Uh, it's, there's some things, you know, just, it's just a fun fly to fish because it has so much action and it darts and it flutters. These flies are not weighted, by the way. The only weight I ever put on a fly 
is a, I'll put dumbbell eyes on it. And it's simply, well, I can't say, I do do cone heads now and then on really turbulent rivers like the Madison. Sometimes there's so much lift to the water, it helps to pop through that surface. Even with a sinking line, sometimes it's hard to get it through a lot of lift to the water. But 99% of the time I fish unweighted flies. My first fly would probably be a zoo cougar. My second fly would probably be that circus peanut, which is an articulated, it's, a, it's two uh, woolly buggers, it's got rubber legs in it, and it's got lead eyes, it's got a cactus body, cactus chenille body. That's kind of a leachy-like pattern. Sounds scary uh, to me. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I got one that's even scarier. I don't know if I can even say what it's called. But it's called a sex dungeon. Uh, it's, got, oh, it's, it's got a lot of stuff going on in it. But, uh, <laughs> it's it's the same concept as the circus peanut, but it's got a big hair head, and it's you know more sculpinish. But most of my flies are related to you know food source, but not exactly. I try to get the general silhouette. And, you know, like a sculpin, for example, I like the broad heads tapering to, you know, a pointy tail. So, you know, marabou is beautiful for that. But the zoo cougar, you know, the, the, the articulated peanut style fly, uh, and then the articulated zoo cougar is quickly becoming the favorite. It was definitely the, you know, the, the peanut and the, the fathead series, which is the, it's just a marabou a lot of marabou with a broad head and two flank feathers on it, just like the zoo cougar. Now, the zoo cougar is in your book, right? Yep. And what about the... Not uh, many of the other ones are. Okay, that's uh, on your next we, uh, DVD. We actually switched over to the articulators later. You know, we did, we did, we just kind of, it's kind of a, it's a work in progress. You know, we, every, every year we come up with two or three different patterns. Uh, I do a lot of crayfish patterns, but... They're not my go-to, for sure. The, the, the sculpin patterns would be my first go-to, either the cougar and then the, the uh, fathead series. Um, all my flies are on Rainey's. Uh, she produces all my flies, and in her catalog or on her website, you can see any of them. And the other one that's not, that's a very basic fly, you know, one I call the stacked blonde, and what that was was, it was Joe Brooks had a blonde series of flies back in the 50s, and they were just huge bucktails tied on salmon hooks. And, you know, it's just all hair, just all bucktail. And the stack blonde is simply a fly tied on a keel hook, and you put four stacks on it, and it keeps a very broad profile. And that fly is the, the I can't remember what year it was, but one year the stacked blonde accounted for every fish over 28 we caught. It's just, it's a beautiful, I like flies that are very light, and they jettison their water on your back cast. And, you know, they don't dry out, but they aren't heavy to cast. And another series that's on, actually on the cover of the book, which was a guy from, actually, I think it's Scott Smith's, it's called a butt monkey. It was designed for, it's got a wool head, and it was designed for trophy brook trout up in uh, Thunder Bay. We do that now in olive, and that fly is another go-to. But I would say the cougar and the fathead, the stacked blonde in yellow or chartreuse. Yellow is, like I said, I would say roughly 
the 50, I'd say 50% of the truly big fish that I've caught have been on that fly. And it's the most basic thing on earth. Uh, so cougar, fathead, blonde, and then uh, butt monkeys, peanuts, woolly sculpins. Woolly sculpin is another really basic fly. I got accused of stealing the bow bugger on that fly, and that's not true at all. The bow bugger doesn't look anything like that. The fly I stole was Ed Shink's sculpin pattern. I, I didn't really, I didn't, <laughs> we get credits where credits are due here. <laughs> I didn't. Um, I really didn't know I stole it. Or the, the all my flies' heads are the same shape. And he had an article in 1970. I found this like two years ago, three years ago. Uh, it was The article was in Fly Fisherman. I think it was 1973, and it was called Sculpinating. And his fly was what I have now as the woolly sculpin, and it was marabou tail, uh, chenille body, and then a big, broad head. I simply put hackle through it, and so I guess I stole his fly, but I never stole the bow bugger. I stole that <laughs> shank's fly. I don't even know if he had a name for it. Now, That's it. it. You mentioned rainies. I think a lot of a lot of people out there are familiar with rainies. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they make the foam body materials and so forth, oh, right? Oh, sure. And Very and some people can get your flies there. Are they identified as your patterns out there? Yeah. Yep. Okay. And, and what about from you directly then? Sure, they can get anything from me. Why don't you take uh, a minute and talk about uh, Slide In, your shop, and the services you offer out of? Out the Slide of- In's uh, we're right on the Madison River. <clears throat> we have a lodge and a fly shop here. Uh, we're just below Quake Lake. I know a lot of people are familiar with the Madison. It's the upper end. We're 30 miles out of the west entrance to Yellowstone. And it, we're seasonable. We open, you know, this week. We open Friday, actually, go through November. And, you know, we fish other rivers. We do the Beaverhead, Big Hole, Jefferson, Yellowstone, Missouri, you know, all the, all the primary uh, drainages around here. And you know, and the lakes as well. We do a lot. Of, we got a lot of lakes around here, so it's a beautiful place. And you I'm actually sitting in my front yard, or on my in the shop right now, and I can see six elk on the side of the mountain. Hmm. Oh, rub it in, will you? That's yeah, terrible. Huh? <laughs> I saw a car yesterday too. Oh. You saw a car. A car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you give your website address and your phone number up there? The website so. is www slideIn.com. My personal web or my personal email is slideIn at the number three, not the word, the number three rivers.net. And you can direct that'll go directly to me. That'll circumvent the web page. And the phone number here is 406-682-4804. We have a few extra flies here. We you know we carry. Not only mine. I mean, I carry. I'm a total fly junkie, and that's what I love about these shows. You talk to, especially these young tires that haven't been jaded by us old guys. They come up with so many create. I mean, give them an idea, and you, you know, next thing you know, they come back with six new patterns. Of course, I try to steal as many as I can, <laughs> and they've all got hip to that, though. What you're trying to duplicate out there with the flies? You're talking mud. You're talking uh, sculpins. Mm-hmm. Right, as a primary food source. Yep. Then crayfish was your second food source that you. Well, tried. I would say probably second would be leeches of some sort. Okay. I mean, not. I don't really think they see many leeches, but more leechy style. You know, less of the head, a lot of movement, longer. Third would probably be minnow. 
Uh, I do a lot of rainbow. In the, the TNA rainbow series is one of the biggest ones that we have. I do a lot of, you know, trout imitate rainbows specifically. Uh-huh. And then fifth would probably be the crayfish. And it's not that I – the crayfish are so deadly, but they aren't necessarily as predominant a food source. And I, I, like I said, I fish the, the flies high in the water column generally. And, but they'll, they'll eat a crayfish on the surface. They have no worries whatsoever. Uh, and, but most people want to fish them lower. And I, I don't do that. I don't dredge the bottom. I, I, I would rather have surgical procedures than dredge the bottom. Uh, and it, just because I don't get to see the strike mostly. The way I was taught to fish was to, you know, dredging and fishing a, a heavy sink tip and fishing the bottom. But it just is, it's not as exciting to me. I don't feel like I've done as much. So, But definitely the, the crayfish would be in that category for sure. But I just, I don't fish them the way most people do. I fish them faster and higher. Okay. Why don't uh, we just check and see if there's anybody on the phone line with a question real quick. Yeah, I think the phone lines are open. Well, actually, it's fun. Is there anybody on the phone line, first of all? Nobody out there. Okay. Even Lawson isn't going to fire well, back at me? <laughs> we, we know historically that most of our uh, audience is on the Internet. Yeah. And, uh, but we, we want to make sure if anybody wants to talk directly to you that they have the opportunity. Yeah, and it's, it's very interesting. Uh, we have registration for our drawing, and that's one of the questions we ask. And, uh, and 100% people will either listen on the Internet live or listen to the recording. So that's fine with us. Uh, in case somebody's out there still with the telephone, then <laughs> we have to accommodate. No surprises. Well, why don't we finish up with um, something that very much interested me uh, in, in your book and uh, on your DVD is um, uh, fighting the fish. Uh, I learned a lot from what you told on, in both those areas. Can you talk about the do's and don'ts of, of, of fighting a trophy fish once you do get them hooked? Absolutely. The uh, I think the most in the book, I use a lot of references to just like fighting in a ring, you know, a couple of things you should never do. And and this is hard because you see it so often. That probably, you know, a lot of my background, 25, 8 years of steelhead guiding, one of the things I see done, and I was taught this as a kid myself, keep your rod high. I think it's the worst thing you can do. There's There's a time and a place to keep your rod high. Generally, it's associated with being out of control. You know, the fish is coming at you, and you're stripping, and you put your rod high. It's a bad thing to do. You're, one, you can't see. You can't strip with your hands over your head. And what will happen is a person will put their hands up, and they'll, the first thing they'll do is look up to see where their line is, and then the next thing they do is they step backwards. And I've told thousands of customers this. If you remember nothing else I ever say, Remember this, nothing good comes from going backwards in a river or a drift boat. You go out, <laughs> and, and you've lost control of the fish. You aren't looking at the fish, and you can't fight the fish if you don't know what he's doing. The control of the fish is done by his head, and there's a win and a lose. If the fish is running away, you cannot stop that fish. You know, you can, it's, but it's difficult. You need to have a win and a lose. So you, you let the fish do his thing. Now, if you have to navigate an obstruction, of course, you're going to have to do your best to lift your rod, your line over it. But for the most part, I like to keep my hands in a box right in my mid-torso. 
I don't I keep the rod low, usually left or right, but I don't lift the rod up high. And the other thing about a rod going high is if a fish jumps, if your line's in the water, you have tension on it. If the rod is up in the air, the line can shake. And that's the only way a fish can throw a hook. If you put your rod in the water when he jumps, he can't, you know, he cannot, he, you can't lose, he can't get away from the tension. But I like to keep the rod, the real butt, right in the middle of my torso and never lift it up or down. I, I always try to play the fish low. And then, you know, obviously looking for that wind. Whenever the fish head coming at you, you're trying to make up line. And if the fish is bolting, it's a good time to let him bolt. I mean, that's why you're there. You want to let him run. I mean, that's the fun of this whole thing. And But one of the most uh, critical moments in the fish fighting is the last 30 seconds. And this is where I see... I would go on a limb and say 90% of our fish are lost at the boat or, you know, at the net. And that's when the rod goes high. And if well, I talked earlier about what's called the gator roll, when the fish is rolling below you, because they'll always spin at the bottom. And that's when you definitely have to get your rod low and right or left, preferably downstream to turn the fish's head. When he starts rolling, he'll work that hook right out of his mouth. And so that's the one, and you keep your rod low right up to the second that the person's going to net, if you're netting it or if someone else is, and then you bring your rod up, not your hands up, your rod up. The, the big mistake is to pick the rod and have the reel go above your head. Once that happens, you've, if the fish moves at you, you've lost control because the only thing you have left to do is to stick your rod high in the air. So I try to keep people to keep the rods low to the water, pulling to the side. You know, if you watch somebody that's good at fighting a tarpon, you'll see that their rod's always down low. They're always pulling low on the fish, much more torque on the fish. And especially that last 30 seconds when it's getting net time, drop his head to the side, and then at the very last second pick your rod up so you can get out of the netter's way or your own way and then do the, the scoop. But... The biggest thing is to keep your rod, your hands in front of you. You know, I, I said in the book, it's just like being in a, in a ring. If you're boxing or whatever, you don't really want to throw your hands over your head. It's not a good defense. So just keep them low and keep the rod low, and you'll land a lot more fish. Well, unfortunately, Kelly, it's time to wrap things up. Gosh, we could we could go on for a long time, I'm sure. But It'll be fun. Uh, uh, we'll return in just a minute uh, to give away Kelly's book, his autographed copy of Modern Streamers for Trophy Trout, so stay tuned to see if you win. Don't forget about the new global events calendar on our website, www.askaboutflyfishing.com. This is the place all events relating to fly fishing can be listed to get maximum exposure. Anyone can list events, and there's no charge. Viewers of the calendar can then access information about the event, its time and location, and contact information. And you can even get a map of the event right from your own doorstep or your hotel if you're traveling. How's that for convenience? So encourage your local clubs and fly shops to get their events listed and watch attendance at the events grow. We'll feature one event for our calendar on each one of our shows. Don, uh, I'm looking through the events calendar, and in Northern California, it looks like Amador Fly Fishers Club has planned an event on Sunday, May 28th. 
and they're doing a barbecue, a bass pond fish feast, and a silent auction at the Greenstone Winery in Ione, California. I think that's so, Fish Fest. Oh, Fish, what did I say? You said Fish Feast. I was thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> so you can go to the events calendar for California and learn more about that. Okay. Well, now it's time for us to draw uh, the auto for the autographed copy of Kelly's uh, book. And you're probably wondering just exactly how we do this. Basically, what we do is we push a button, and our computer program randomly selects a name from tonight's registration database. If you're the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with information on how you'll receive your gift. So here we go. And the winner is Charlie Ray in Indiana. Great. Congratulations, well. Charlie. You're going to enjoy this book, and, boy, this will be a resource for you for years to come. Congratulations, Charlie. Well, Kelly, hey, we really appreciate you being with us tonight, and thanks for taking time to teach us more about fishing streamers for trophy trout. And I hope you join us sometime in the future, and we'll maybe talk about something else. Roger and Don, it was a pleasure. I had a great time, and I hope great. we can get together again in the future. Yep, great time. Well, our next broadcast will be on June 7th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on this show, we're going to have a, a little different setup. We have a panel of three top women fly fishers from Alaska, Idaho, and as far down as the Florida Keys. Cecilia Pudge Kleinkoff, Lorianne Murphy, and Diana Rudolph will be our guests. All three know their fly fishing and, and know the business of fly fishing. They're all working professionals in the industry. So join us to learn more about fly fishing and how women are raising the bar. Diana won the Holly Invitational Tarpon Tournament, a male-dominated event, and she holds two IGFA fly division records. So there's something to learn from that lady. It's going to be an exciting show, so don't miss it. We'd like to thank 3M Scientific Anglers. Keeney's Fly Shop for sponsoring our show tonight, and thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. <laughs>